Welcome back to another episode of the Max Term Podcast. Kyle Stitch here alongside James Finch. And today we're kind of looking at where the NHL landscape stands about halfway between the start of the offseason and halfway to the regular season start. So kind of the midpoint right now. And there has been very little movement on the trade market. Still a couple interesting unsigned players. Um, and then a couple big trades, namely Eric Carlson deal has uh, happened recently, and we've never kind of discussed that on here. So that's kind of where we're going in today's episode. Um, if, you, if you're interested, have any questions or anything, want to follow up with us, at AFP Analytics on Twitter is uh, where we kind of publish most of our content. We're working on some uh, exciting site upgrades for AFPAnalytics.com that we're going to probably have launched by the start of the regular season, if not sooner. And you can also find our personal Twitter handles um, at the AFP Analytics Twitter account. On threads as well, AFP Analytics. We still, we said we were going to use it more, still haven't really dove fully into that one. Uh, at Max Term Pod, we also appreciate you uh, following there, subscribing to this podcast on any uh, platform you might be listening and any ads or any products or anything you might hear associated with this episode are not necessarily products that James or I are working with or endorsing. And with that, I think we will start with, I don't know if it's, it was a massive shock, but it was definitely a little bit of a groundswell with Eric Carlson being traded to the Pittsburgh Penguins. I don't think the player, I don't think the team were surprising. I think the return, at least for San Jose, was. Yeah, so for all the time that went by without a deal happening, um, this is something people were expecting to happen at the beginning of the offseason. So all, all that time that went by, I think the expectation was, okay, this is going to kind of be a good deal. And it, it seems like San Jose kind of just ran out of leverage and ended up stuck with a deal that didn't get them a whole lot as far as futures other than a first-round pick. And for a team that is supposedly trying to rebuild a little bit, that's not good when you're trading the Norris Trophy winner. Yeah, and maybe like a Jan Ruda or Mike Hoffman could be flipped down the road for a little bit more at the deadline. But I think a really important thing, especially like when you look at Mike Hoffman with his contract, I think there would be a contender that would be interested. But one of the kind of nuances of this Carlson deal is San Jose retained some salary. So they also did the same with Brett Burns last offseason. And teams are only allowed three retained salary slots. And Burns and Carlson are going to be on their books for a couple more years at this point. So trying to facilitate like a Hoffman deal at the deadline, for example, might be a little bit more difficult because it, that, that would be all they can do retaining salary. Maybe it's fine uh, if, you know, the contract comes off the book at the end of the off, at the start of the offseason, but... That, that that to me was kind of the shocker with the trade is San Jose retained some money, really not much, and still, but kind of traded off and only got that first round pick back. To add to that, they had to retain some money and take back Michael Granlund, who is considered um, a player who's not going to live up to his contract, so $5 million. Um, per year for two more years. Um, so needing to retain on Carlson and take back a contract like that isn't great. And to touch on the um, idea of possibly flipping someone like Hoffman or even Aruda, if, if you need to retain salary, yeah, it would eat up that, um, that third salary retention spot. Some other guys on expiring deals for San Jose, Kevin LeBanc, Anthony Duclair is there now, um, Alexander Barbanov. None of these guys are breaking the bank, but when you're talking about flipping them to a contender mid-year, you might need to retain to get a deal done. So 
it's possible they're able to retain on someone like Hoffman in a trade and end up getting some type of future asset for him, but it just overall is a very underwhelming uh, situation for San Jose. Yeah, I don't want to sit here and necessarily knock San Jose for using the retention slot on Carlson, but I feel like they need to leverage that more. Like, as you said, they took back really two bad contracts in Granlin and Hoffman, only retained a one and a half million on Carlson. So basically money in, money out was almost equal. Like for a team that's really rebuilding, why not weaponize your space that you have and are going to, should continue to have to try to get a little bit more of a return? Like if you're going to use that spot, there's to me no difference between retaining one and a half and three, four, even upwards five, five and a half, which would be pushing the max that they're allowed to do. To me, there's really not a ton of difference if it can kind of get you more quality assets back. And I think that to me was was where San Jose really fell short in this deal. Yeah, and for, for a team that is supposedly rebuilding, they got back some roster players who aren't necessarily good, but they aren't terrible. Um, they're going to perform fairly well, and it, it's just kind of a weird, almost like they're trying to retool instead. And I, I don't think that's really going to pay off for them long term. Um, the way this deal went, so neither one of us liked the return for San Jose. I feel like they just kind of got stuck with it. Carolina was one of the other teams rumored to be in. And it was really kind of just them and Pittsburgh this offseason. Um, Carolina was mentioned, and then they kind of stopped being mentioned, and it was just Pittsburgh for a little while. I really think that San Jose just, maybe they overplayed their hand a little bit and ended up getting stuck with one team. Um, the part of this deal that was actually, I think, really good was really for Pittsburgh. They got the Norris Trophy win winner a little bit, salary retained, and didn't give up a whole lot. Um, cleared off a bad contract in Gramlin, a little space with Ruta. Don't really need Ruta there anymore. They're... Defense is pretty good, and Carlson came in in the trade. I think it's great, great deal for Pittsburgh, and San Jose just kind of, I think, had to pull the trigger on this. There was nothing else. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that we don't necessarily know, nothing's came out about it, is Eric Carlson had control over where he was ultimately going to be traded with with uh clauses in his contract that allowed him to basically veto any destination he did not want to go to. He negotiated that. That's fully in his right. So part of me wonders, like us talking about this return being a little lackluster, how it kind of seemed like it was ultimately Pittsburgh. If Carlson kind of quietly behind the scenes told San Jose, listen, I want to go to Pittsburgh. That's where I want to go. You're gonna move me out of here. It's it's Pittsburgh, or you're go, or I'm gonna stay here and play another year, and we'll see what happens. So that that would be a big kind of factor on kind of the return. If San Jose is negotiating with Pittsburgh, they're just negotiating against themselves basically, and it's a it's an unfortunate situation that it kind of came down to that. I don't know. Maybe they had the ability to move him at the deadline prior to the off season. I, I, who knows what what was out there? Maybe they maybe that's where they overplayed their hand, but I that could have been kind of what ultimately was at play here. And I think the other so Pittsburgh sent out Mikel Granlund, and then they also were able to get a third team involved to kind of dump some more salary. So what Pittsburgh ended up doing is basically sending out the same amount of money with Jeff Petrie going out. They retained a little bit there. Mikel Granlin, as we talked about, going to San Jose. They sent out Casey to Smith after they signed Alex Nedeljkovic this offseason. So Pittsburgh's basically money in, money out. They're a lot closer to the cap because of the Getzel. Well, the Getzel injury 
may leave them with some cap space, may not really, depends how long he's going to be out. But sticking with the Jeff Petrie kind of moved out aspect of it, I thought originally Montreal was pretty darn smart to get involved here, especially being able to clear that Mike Hoffman salary. They got a second round pick. Jeff Petrie, Casey DeSmith, who might be a sneaky nice addition for them and to stabilize their goaltending a little bit, but realistically, if they're not contending, it probably doesn't matter. But that second round pick for, you know, just kind of getting involved, I like that. Yeah, I think that value is uh, pretty good. The interesting here, the interesting thing here is that they didn't end up, they did not end up keeping Jeff Petrie. Uh, flipped him to Detroit, retaining 50% off of what was left. So um, when Pittsburgh retained, it brought his salary down to 4.687. Um, Montreal retains half of that, a little over 2.3. They get Gustav Lindstrom and a fourth-round pick, a conditional one. It's going to be kind of just up to where teams finish, uh, whether they get Detroit's fourth round or Boston's fourth round. That seems a little lackluster as far as a return for Petrie. The way I kind of look at it is there was that second-round pick for being involved in the Carlson deal, plus Lindstrom and this fourth. That's probably not too bad. I think Petrie's probably a league average defenseman at this point, and he's getting up there in age for the NHL. So maybe that's just kind of the best they can do. Um, I don't think it's great for Montreal, but I don't. I don't think it's too bad. Yeah, I. I probably feel a little stronger about. I don't really like Montreal retaining the full fifty percent. So really, Montreal's goal before the season is to get as close to the salary cap ceiling. They're currently still a little bit over it. Um, so Carey Price is going to go on long-term injured reserve. The ideal scenario is to wait until the regular season, the first official day of the NHL season has started, before putting Price on long-term injured reserve, because then they can use all all of his sal- uh, salary cap hit, that $10.5 million that he's carrying, to basically add additional salary during the season if they desire. Again, I'm not sure Montreal is going to desire that because I don't know if they're going to necessarily be contenders, but the idea is to get as close to the ceiling, the $83.5 million that the salary cap set at this year prior to the start of the season, and I was looking at it, and I, if my math is correct, if Montreal had retained, you know, maybe 25% on Jeff Petrie, them getting to that ceiling is a little bit easier. Yeah, so Montreal is interesting as far as how they could fit or make that scenario work because I, I think it's possible they could still make a move or two. Um, when, I, when I look at their roster, they've got a decent amount of centers. So Nick Suzuki, Christian Dvorak, Kirby Doc, Jake Evans, and then they acquired Alex Newhook earlier in the offseason. They don't all have to play center, but there's some salary in there, and there were some rumors that someone like a Christian Dvorak could be available. It's still very possible that Montreal could look to move some money around. Um, that being said, nothing's really happened in the past month or so um, across the NHL trade-wise. So maybe that doesn't happen. That scenario you discussed is kind of off the table. Yeah, so looking at their kind of salary cap again, their goal when the regular season starts is to basically be at $83.5 million. Right now, Cat Friendly has them sitting... 87, just a shade over $87 million. So basically $3.7 million above the salary cap ceiling. So my kind of criticism of Montreal is they really should have only retained maybe 25%. 
So they should probably have another million in cap space or so. Adding another million in cap space, sending down Raphael Harvey Pinard at the start of the season, who is waiver exempt but going to carry a cap hit of 1.1 million. And then they could do the exact same thing with Jordan Harris. Gets them, if they had an, already an extra million in space, that there, there's your salary cap ceiling. Put Carey Price on long-term injured reserve. Call those guys back up, and you're good to go. But they're going to have to, I mean, again, I don't think it's going to be the end of the world. They can send a couple more def- of their young defensemen down to probably get there. But it's it's just it's more paper moves than you kind of have to, and I don't know. It I guess it's probably going to work out okay, but feels like just retaining twenty five percent, sending Petrie out is about a three million dollar player, which is kind of where he would have sat if he was a free agent in this year's class. Seems to make sense to me. Yeah, I think. Again, I think it's a little hard because the offseason isn't quite over. We don't know for sure what their plan is. There's a couple ways they could go here. But overall, their involvement taking on Jeff Petrie, it's just kind of one of those moves I think makes me go, okay, I, I guess that's fine. I don't know how much they really benefited from it. Um, the second round pick is nice. Uh, flipping him for, uh, I don't want to say a failed prospect. I think that might be a little too soon to call Lindstrom that, but the growth hasn't quite been there in Detroit. Um, and then a fourth round pick is kind of, okay, cool, but that doesn't move the needle at all. So I guess they did a decent job. Um, but again, not a move that I really expected to see from Montreal. Yeah, and to to me, ironically, so I, I think that there was probably some behind the scenes with the player and maybe not necessarily wanting to be back in Montreal, but I look at Montreal's roster and I think they could use Jeff Petrie back there. So like when the trade initially happened, I'm like, Wow, Montreal just did something really smart. They got a second-round pick, a player that will be useful for them, a goalie that, I mean, might help a little bit. But, again, I'm not expecting them to necessarily compete because they're in an absolutely loaded division, loaded conference. I think they're probably the eighth out of eighth in the Atlantic division, barring some massive injury to one of the other teams. But but they, they kind of could have made some moves that, that maybe made them a little bit sneaky, especially if some of their young guys took a little bit more of a step forward than maybe I'm expecting. Slavkowski especially, maybe if he comes on as, and looks like a number one overall pick. Caulfield's healthy, Suzuki's healthy putting up numbers. I mean, they have, as we ran through, they have some nice center depth. Decent could have had a decent blue line in my opinion with Petrie. Maybe gotten some goaltending out of Jake Allen and Casey DeSmith, who have both had their moments in their career. And maybe they could have done some sneaky things if they got some, you know, luck, some development, etc. So I don't know. To me, Montreal getting involved was great, and then they kind of went and moved the player that I thought made it a great idea. Exactly, and I, I think the best way to put it with Montreal is they're kind of one of those in-between teams where they're not that good, but when you look at them on paper, it looks like they're really trying to be good. Um, Yeah, Petrie would have definitely made them a little bit better. Would it have been enough to really make a difference for them? I'm not so sure, but it, it, it kind of speaks to that what exactly is Montreal trying to accomplish, and at first, adding Petrie, okay, they're, they're trying to be a little bit better than kind of flipping them. They're just kind of one of those in-between teams that doesn't really seem like they can pick one route and decide uh, to fully go um, and put all their chips in a certain basket. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's where it's kind of 
I, I think tough, like realistically having some pieces to move at the deadline might not be a bad idea for them. To Smith maybe falls in that category, but really goalies don't get moved at the deadline for anything meaningful. Like maybe having Hoffman still on the roster to move at the deadline themselves might have made more sense than getting the second round pick from Pittsburgh, who's you would expect at this point to be a playoff team. So that would probably be a later second round pick anyways. So I don't know, maybe, maybe holding off there, but with the idea of kind of, you know, still having some level of needs to address. So Montreal, I think still needs really, they could still use a defenseman if they want to be a serious contender. I mean, right now looking at Michael Matheson and David Savard as their top two guys is, it's kind of a scary proposition to me. Like, I'm not afraid of those two guys uh, matching up. But kind of looking around the league, let's stay in the Atlantic division, I think. So the Boston Bruins are pretty much officially now, I'll say pretty much because you, players can always change their mind, but Patrice Bergeron, David Krejci have officially retired. Boston doesn't have... A first line center. Let's 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 not sugarcoat that. They do not have a first line center. And maybe not even a second line center. Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that happened earlier in the offseason, so Morgan Geeky was kind of their main center addition. And at the time it kind of came out that Boston was thinking, you know what, we're going to give him a shot. And we talked about this in earlier episodes, or past episodes. That's not the greatest plan to have, I don't think. He had some decent numbers, and maybe he could turn into something, but kind of seems like he at most will be that ideal third-line guy, which they kind of already have a couple of those players in, Charlie Coyle, Pavel Zaka. Um, so it's it's really going to come down to Coyle, Zaka, and Geeky as the one, two, and three down the middle. And uh, like I just said, that, that's three third-line centers. Um, losing Bergeron and Krejci, you'd like to see them replace at least one of them. And then maybe you can justify going into the season and saying, okay, Coyle or Zaka on the second line, it's not the end of the world. Maybe we add another center at the deadline. Going into the season really needing two upgrades down the middle, that doesn't really happen during the season. So I, I'm kind of, I kind of question like how good Boston's really going to be moving forward. Um, it... It's kind of weird that the older guys on the team that are gone um, kind of close. I don't want to say their windows closed, but it's starting to close. And all the young guys are still there. That's not usually how it works. But, um, yeah, their, their center depth, I think, is questionable for a team that was just the best team regular season-wise in the NHL. Yeah, record-setting team, in fact. Um I think one of the, I think a sneaky idea for Boston, and it doesn't sound like this is happening before the start of the season, um, Jonathan Taze seems to want to take the full season off, but the Boston Bruins, maybe if they start, you know, staying in contention for a while and, you know, as the deadline gets a little closer, Taze maybe has a little bit of time off, feels healthy again. Could Boston pick up the phone, call Jonathan Taze to add him for basically a rental player at the near the deadline as and slot into one of those two spots? I mean, as you said, you usually don't find two centers out there, but Taze could sneakily be one of those. They still probably would need another, and I don't even know if Taze is the answer here. He might be just another third-line center, but... yeah. But that's a that's a name there that I that I think was interesting at the start of the offseason for Boston. Maybe still could, but yeah, I don't know I don't know how they're how they're 
finding a center. I mean, I think one of the names we connected to Boston earlier in the offseason was Mark Shifley with Winnipeg, who's still in Winnipeg. I think that uh, that's a nice transition to Winnipeg, who still has all their players. Yeah, so with Winnipeg, I think it was ex- not expected, but it was very possible, and there was a lot of talk around this being the case, that their forward group, their defensive group, and even their goalies could look very different going into next season. And really not much has happened other than that they bought out Blake Wheeler. Another case of just the trade market has been very, very quiet. Um, Shifley was probably that one other forward on the Jets that it really made sense he could be moved out. It's kind of interesting. We've talked about before with the Jets that we really think they should just go right into that rebuild and move Shifley, move um, Hellebuck. You've got some defensemen. Dylan DeMello would probably get a pretty decent return, a very underrated player. I don't, I, I feel like at this point, maybe they're just sticking with what they've got and we'll see what happens this year. Issue with that for me is just from an asset management point or standpoint. Mark Shifley, he's going to be a UFA at the end of the year. Hellebuck UFA, DeMello UFA, Brendan Dillon UFA, Niederreiter UFA. You've only got two years left on Ehlers. It's another team where I, I think the window is closing. There were rumors of some unhappiness from different players. I think Shifley was kind of one of them. Not necessarily unhappiness from Hellebuck, but just kind of a... It's not really in my plan to stay here long term. And I think once that comes out for a player, you, you kind of have to move them. Like, you need to get assets for them. So I think, I think one interesting kind of overarching question for this offseason, and may, maybe in general in the NHL, is the best time to, like, Teams, teams always, well, media people always say teams view this as more of an off-season move. But is the most optimal time to make a trade a player on an expiring contract at the deadline? Like, sometimes it feels like that's when the most value is, is received. Picks are thrown around because teams know that, oh, we get this guy, we're, we're already in the playoffs, it's probably going to be a late first-round pick, so we're more... We're more okay moving that first-round pick. We're more okay moving that prospect. So I I kind of wonder if if this offseason, lack of offseason moves, I guess I should say, might set up a very, very interesting trade deadline because you just named a bunch of guys on the Winnipeg Jets that could certainly help some contenders. And then there's another team in Canada that also has multiple guys on expiring contracts that would help contenders. Calgary Flames still still have Elias Lindholm, still have Backlund, still have Noah Hannafin. Yeah, so to touch really quickly, um, I, I think another part of the trade deadline maybe being um, a better spot to really move these guys, especially guys with only a year left, Teams are probably a little more desperate come the trade deadline, whether it's injury, they're right on the outside of the playoffs and want to make a move they feel definitely gets them in. Um, The picture is a little bit more clear for a lot of the teams at that point than right now in the offseason. At the same time, do some teams that were originally interested this offseason fall off the board? and say, well, why would we trade for Shifley right now? We're definitely out of the playoffs around the trade deadline. So, I mean, it's I don't think it's necessarily a question that can be answered perfectly, but I, I do think there is definitely um, something to waiting t- until the deadline. I, I think the pressure for teams is up a little more, and you might be able to get a little bit better of a value. I think the other kind of overarching theme that ties into that with this offseason in particular, cap space. Teams know where they sit at the trade deadline. 
If they have a guy that's going to be on long-term injured reserve, they are going to know if that player is going to be out to the playoffs at that point. So they know if they can add that additional salary. They It's easier to add players if you're under the cap later in the season because each day you're kind of under the cap, you gain an additional dollar of salary you can add. It's, it's kind of a complicated prorated formula. Um, spoiler, that's also one of the things that kind of working on to write up on uh, AFPanalytics.com. So be, be look, looking forward to that. But as the season kind of wears on, it's really easier to add salary. And this offseason, we keep hearing no one has cap space. No one has cap space. So maybe maybe teams just want to wait to the, to the deadline when, again, they're going to have the same cap space, but it's going to be easier to work with. Yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility. Um, so you brought up Calgary, and this thought popped into my head. It's pure speculation. I don't know how realistic it is. Trades like this don't necessarily happen often. But so so if you're the Winnipeg Jets and you have Shifley, one year left, it's not going to come back. And then if you're the Calgary Flames and you have Elias Lindholm, one year left, he's not signing his contract extension. And both teams are deciding, well, we still want to be competitive. Is that a trade match to flip the players? And maybe it's not exactly one for one, but I, I kind of wonder if something like that would make the most sense at this point because there are a couple teams here who, whether they should or not, at least in our opinion, seem to be kind of putting the pedal to the metal and want to try and win a cup still. Yeah, I think what, I mean, that would be basically what Calgary did with Matthew Kachuk getting Huberto back, Uyghur back, and then basically subsequently giving them extensions. The I think the issue is, and I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing Canadian cities here, but going from Calgary to Winnipeg, I don't know if that's solving the overarching, you know, thing that players want to leave because yeah i i i don't think it solves that either necessarily but i don't know i i like i said going into that i don't think it's a perfect thing um but yeah i, I don't think that issue really goes away does Lindholm want to sign an extension in winnipeg maybe but possibly not just like shifley or hellebuck so yeah, I mean, maybe it wouldn't work, but for two teams that know certain guys aren't going to return, maybe you try it with other ones. I don't know. Yeah, I I, I do like it. I like the idea. Um, I mean, again, I, I rattled off Kachuk, Matthew Kachuk from Calgary. Also, a little bit Patrick Laine and Pierre-Luc Dubois was, was when Columbus and Winnipeg swapped those guys. Yep. I mean, again, Dubois made it clear that he probably wasn't signing in Winnipeg, but they gave it a shot anyways. They had a little bit more runway to work with. So I don't know if the you know teams based in Winnipeg and Calgary are the right case study, but I don't think it, I think if we're talking about another, even, even like a Toronto where it's a very different market, maybe one player wants the spotlight. Maybe, I don't know, Willie Nylander might thrive a little bit more out of the spotlight. Maybe that's a trade that could make a little bit more sense. But, but yeah, it's it, it's tough when you're kind of backed against the wall as as Calgary, Winnipeg are. But the same point, I they they have to they have to do more. They can't let both these teams can't let multiple core pieces walk next July first for absolutely nothing or even like trade their negotiating rights a little bit before for a mid-round pick like that's still not good enough yeah and so to, to touch on the multiple core pieces just to make sure we've got it covered uh calgary so we were talking about lindholm for a bit right there michael backland who's i mean he's 34 so he's getting up there in age but he's still performing very well as a very good second third line center 
um, someone who kind of, I, I think there are quotes of him saying it, kind of expected he could become captain in Calgary. And extension talks just haven't quite gone as well as um, both sides would hope, I think. Um, so Backlund, Lindholm up front. You've got Hannafin, um, who is kind of the big defenseman that they could end up losing after this season to the UFA market. You've also got Chris Tanev, who is a very good defensive player. There's just kind of... It's the same as Winnipeg. They could end up losing these guys for nothing, and it's like, what is that really? Was that the best route to go? Um, I guess time will tell. It wouldn't shock me to see a roster like this go deep into the playoffs. It's possible, um, but you're kind of risking losing half of your core. I think I think a little difference with Winnipeg and Calgary is. For Calgary, Mikel Backlund and Chris Tanov particularly are players that contenders are going to be lining up for. Shifley, on the other hand, I don't know. He's he's kind of disappeared, had a suspension in the playoffs. Like he's got his sample size in the playoffs is not great. A Backlund and a Tanov, though, are players that I would imagine most contenders would have some offer on the table for. So they're very they're similar situations, but Calgary might be able to wait this out a little bit more. Winnipeg with DeMello, same thing. I think he I think he would be more similar to a tan of where contenders are lining up for him. So I think it depends on the type of player. Lindholm is an interesting one to me. But those two those two kind of Canadian teams, we've talked about them multiple times on this podcast throughout the offseason. They really should tear it down, but just don't seem to want to. And I think the other interesting kind of point to make on Calgary before we move on is they have in goal kind of a kind of a blockade on their young star goalie who's pretty much proven he's too good for the AHL, and that's Dustin Wolf, and he's blocked by Markstrom and Vladar. Yeah, so just a, another rumor that didn't end up leading to anything from earlier in the offseason was Vladar possibly being on the move. Um, because of that exact reason, Wolf is kind of blocked by these two guys, and it seems like Markstrom with a no-move clause is going to be the one that stays. Um Vladar's a decent backup. He did kind of have a down season. Um, but you'd think that kind of any team in need of goaltending would have some interest there and just nothing's come to fruition. But uh, like you said, that that's a spot across the NHL um, where we kind of put a star. Something could still happen here, Calgary, in their goaltending situation. So let's stay on the goalie train for a minute. Um Another name in the same category that everyone was like, oh, this this guy's definitely out. This guy's definitely out. And he's still there. John Gibson in Anaheim still is still in Anaheim. And, again, the, each day we're still in the offseason, but each day we get closer to the regular season is, is each day that feels less and less likely that one of these trades happens. So John Gibson's still out there. Boston still – has two goalies. They got them both under contract at this point. I don't know if we have any full clarity on what Linus Allmark's status is going to be, but if Boston's looking to make another kind of move to shore up that center position that we've already talked about, one of the one of those two goalies seems like the really the only trade piece at this point on from that roster without doing something insane. And then we still have teams that need go- that. I mean, we think would need a goalie. Start. I'll start with Tampa Bay Lightning tandem right now. Andre Vasilevsky, great. His backup's Jonas Johansson, who has not proven much in a very limited NHL sample size. They so they do have a younger goalie in Hugo Almafelt. I might have butchered that last name. Someone who I think is believed to eventually become a solid NHL goalie, but I'm not sure it's he, that he's there yet. I, I don't 
I don't think that's really expected for next year. So, yeah, they, they really could use um, a goalie to back up Vasilevsky. I, we've kind of seen them. Um, they had uh, Brian Elliott there, and it's not quite enough to actually give Vasilevsky a breather. Um, Johansson, I, he probably has the legs and conditioning where he can play enough games. I don't know if it would be at the level that they need, though. And, yeah, I, I think that is a spot that they could really improve and get a backup in that is capable of playing 20 to 25 and actually give Vasilevsky a little bit of a break so that come playoff time he's able to just settle in every game. See, I, I'm even look. I, I think your 20 to 25 is a little bit low. I would like to see maybe a backup pushing 30 to 35 games. Johansson, again, I mean, he's he's been a tremendous AHL goalie, has not put it together in the NHL. Um, another pro- the other prospect in the pipeline, I'm not even going to try the name, that um, there, there are other goalie prospects in the pipeline – could those two form kind of a 15-15 to make 30? Sure. But, again, if you're Tampa Bay, you need – you don't just need starts. You need some quality starts because you can't you can't just write off that number of games. And, of course, Vasilevsky won't be perfect either. You have other teams in your division that are closing in on you. You've taken a step back probably overall on your roster. So – I don't know. I think Tampa Bay needs needs some other option. I I mean, like a Dan Vladar would make a lot of sense for Tampa Bay. The the thing that's tough here for Tampa Bay is cap wise. Um, so at this moment, cap friendly has them just over six point nine million over the salary cap. They have Brent Seabrook, who is a long term injured reserve. Uh, player at 6.875. They're going to have a little bit of work to do, just kind of sending guys down, bringing them back up um, to make the cap work. If they wanted to add someone like a Dan Vladar, um, who I I just had it up, I don't anymore. I want to say just over $2 million, uh, 2.2, I think. It's kind of a money-in, money-out situation for Tampa Bay right now, and that gets kind of tough because, like you said, their roster seems to... It's slowly becoming less... uh, Really, just... It's not good. Um, Their depth is kind of not bad now, but the Tampa Bay Lightning of four or five years ago where a lot of the players were coming up. Sorelli was able to play third line, and they have Kalorn and Palat. Uh, Yanni Gord is third, fourth line for them. That depth just isn't there anymore. Um, a lot of the picks trading away higher picks for guys like uh, Barclay Goudreau and Blake Coleman. Tampa Bay's kind of seeing the negative impact of that now of, well, because they move those picks, they don't have that talent coming up through the system like they once did. It's, I don't know, I, I, they're slowly on the decline roster-wise and needing to move out a forward, let's say, a, a Tanner Janot, or and they're not going to move Connor Sherry because they just signed him, but maybe a, a Nicholas Paul you're eating away more at that depth up front that is already hurting a little bit. So I, as much as I think they need to add a goalie, I, I don't really know how they would do it. Yeah, uh, so let's, I guess we'll stick in the Atlantic division with another team that, from our perspective, seems to need a goalie but from the team's perspective, might be acting like they're all set. Buffalo Sabres have Devin Levi, who played a handful of games after his college season, looked pretty good in most of them. And then they have Eric Comrie, whose time in Buffalo has been shaky at best. 
and Ukopekalukanen, who I think the same adjectives can be used as I just said for Comrie, shaky at best. Um, so really, in our opinion, at least mine, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't speak for both of us here, but three goalies with a level of question mark, one you feel a little bit more comfortable with in Levi, and then the other two that maybe they could get hot and provide some relief, but... But going into the you know a season where it's it's not make or break, but really they should be pushing for the playoffs with a rookie goalie fresh out of college who's never played more than like forty games in a season. Uh, that doesn't seem like the best strategy to me. Definitely not, and I, I think the future is very bright for Devin Levi, but I think it is a lot to ask to kind of have him be the main guy. And, you know, maybe in Buffalo's eyes, he's not really the main guy. Maybe it's a mixture of those other two and Levi, which I don't think is really what Buffalo fans want to hear, but um, it, it just kind of seems like the current plan. Uh, like you said, Comrie, um, I, I think an injury last year kind of impacted any ability for him to get on a roll. And with Uko Pekalukanen, I feel like last year everyone was kind of saying, I think we were saying as well, this is kind of the year we need to see something from him. So we're kind of going on another year, I guess, of we kind of need to see something from him. That's not great when you have a rookie goalie who has barely played NHL minutes, um, and then another goalie who had a really good season as a backup, and you took a flare on him, and it didn't really work. Um, I will say, in my opinion, that was kind of a glaring spot of they need to improve this area of the roster, and they didn't. Um, it could work out. Levi could be great. Um, I just think that's kind of a risky bet for a team, like you said, they should be pushing for the playoffs. I think I think one kind of narrative that's being thrown around here with, with the Sabres is, well, they, they, okay, they haven't done anything in goal, but they have dipped into the market to get defensemen to improve the play in front of those goalies. I, I don't think either of us are, uh, and I got quite the face when, when I kind of said improve the play in front of the goalies. I don't I don't think either of us are sitting here saying that Connor Clifton and Eric Johnson alone are solving the goals against issues the Sabres had last year. Yeah, so in my opinion, they basically signed two bottom pair defensemen to fill what I think everyone was kind of saying was a top four opening. Um, so just defensively, Darlene Samuelson and Owen Power, that's a good top three. Um, they still need one more person to play big minutes, and maybe Clifton can do that. He was very solid for Boston um, in a smaller role. That's not really the, the move I would have made if I was Buffalo, because you've got guys who can definitely play on the bottom pair. It kind of, to me, they add Clifton and Eric Johnson, who I think might bring a good leadership aspect, especially as someone who's won the Cup very recently. Um, but I don't think he's really a top-four guy at this point in his career. He's definitely more of a bottom pair. I just don't know really what the expectation is there. Um Hopefully one of those guys can pair well with Owen Power, I guess. And As the offseason started, Yoki Haru's name was next to Owen Power, and I don't really feel any different if you put Clifton next to Power. Um, I guess try something different, try something new, but as far as improving the defense in front of the goalies, I feel like they just got some more similar type players. Quick tangent, real quickly, while we talk about Power and Dowling. Both those players are eligible for extensions. I would have kind of expected at least Dowling's to be announced by now. 
I know there, there's a level of like marketing and PR about maybe they'll wait until kind of training camp opens and the and he's back in the Buffalo area, but it feels like it's a pretty pretty obvious contract. Eight years between nine and ten million, maybe even pushing a little bit more per year. I, I don't I don't know maybe maybe there's I don't I don't want to sit here and say there's there's issues or pan, panic or anything but it's a, it's a little interesting that it that it is still lingering out there to me I mean if I'm Dowling's agent if I'm Powers agent I have them play out this season to be honest because Dowling had a phenomenal year last year was was a Norris contender for a while until injuries hit. If he could stay healthy this year, have the same season, but finish it through, like he's probably a top, he very well could be top three in Norris trophy votes, higher salary cap, and be looking at even more money. So, again, I if you're a Buffalo fan listening to this, I'm not saying panic about Dali not about Dali leaving Buffalo. That's not going to happen. I just I just the longer this goes and the, he's not signed every. Once the season starts, his price tag's probably going up. Yeah, you, you pretty much said it. If if not, you definitely hinted at it. Um, and we've talked about this in previous episodes. If you're an RFA, why sign now? I, I mean, I, I guess certain guys maybe want to make sure you lock in a certain contract, but if, if you're a top defenseman on a team and really a top defenseman in the NHL, why sign now? Why not wait until next year when the cap's going to go up? Let's say at least $3 million. So, yeah, if we were to advise uh, Darlene's agent or just Darlene himself of what to do, we'd probably tell him to wait. Um, why sign now? But as the team, you really want to get it done. There was a lot of talk that it could be close, and maybe it still is. And like you said, maybe they're just waiting for training camp get a little closer to the season um it's a nice uh pr marketing thing for them but it could be something that i think gets uh pushed kind of to next off season yeah and again if you're if you're dulling in your in in his camp next your next contract is not falling below nine nine and a half million under any circumstances he, he could and, and I don't want to jinx anything here but he could blow his his knee out first day of training camp be out for the season and he still would easily be able to get a nine million dollar contract because he's he's a generational defenseman for the Sabres so really there's no risk for him going into the season on an expiring contract He's still in restricted free agent, so Buffalo's still going to retain his rights. The Sabres aren't in danger of losing him. So, and and realistically, if he wants to stay, like it, they can easily work that out in the off season, in next off season. So, I, again, I, I I still expect it gets done. It would be kind of a nightmare for the team to not have that done with with a player like that. Owen Power could be a little bit of a different scenario because. He, he's clearly a good defenseman, but I don't know if we know exactly what he is, where his ceiling is, what type of player he is. So so that could linger. He could go into next offseason. He's also a lot younger, so there's a lot more runway to work with. So if he doesn't get this signed this offseason, I don't I don't think it's an issue. Delene, again, it's not an issue, but if you're the Sabres, you really need to get it done. And then speaking of RFA still unsigned, you know, we're kind of jumping a little bit here. Trevor Zegras in Anaheim is probably the big name without a contract. And real real quick, another kind of quick tangent, semantics-wise, if training camp does start and Trevor Zegras is not there with the Anaheim Ducks, he is unsigned. He is not holding out. A holdout is if you're under contract and refusing to perform services. He is unsigned. He does not have a contract. He should not be on the ice because if something were to happen to him, he's uh, not protected. He's not going to earn money. So Trevor Zegers right now is unsigned and will continue to be unsigned until a contract is is signed. I know I just said signed like four times there. Well, and I, at no point will he be a holdout. 
Yeah, I think that is good clarification because I, I think those terms kind of get thrown around and not exactly used in the right way um, fairly often. It, it isn't a holdout if, you, if you're not under contract. Um, that being said, so Zerus not under contract. Situation, we, we've talked about this before, but ideally you, you get a long-term deal done there. Um, sign your players young. Um, he's 22 right now. Uh, I feel like it's coming. I, I think Troy Terry, the arbitration process, they didn't actually go through with it. He ends up signing a long-term deal. Um, but I, I feel like that's kind of okay. They check that off and, okay, now let's deal with Trevor Zegers. Um, so I, I would expect that to happen at some point soon. Um, I'm not really sure the situation there, but I don't think there's any real reason that the player would not want to sign at this point. So, um, yeah, he's probably the the big name to watch out for right now at, at this point in the offseason, but I, I don't think there's anything real major going on there or not going on there. Um, a second name to keep an eye on, and I think it's a little more interesting because it's a bit of a tighter cap situation. Um, Evan Bouchard and the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, Bouchard being, really at this point, he is their power play one defenseman. Uh, he's a top pair guy. Unsigned. He's an RFA. They have about three and a half million in cap space. I'm not really sure that that's enough, um, even on a short-term deal. So our projection for Bouchard um, was just higher than that on a short-term deal. Two years at three point six seven million. Long-term, we had six years at about five and a half, but I think he could possibly exceed that after seeing some of the deals signed this offseason. They, I think, might be able to get him done on like a, a one-year, maybe a two-year, a little bit lower, and they go right up to the cap. Um, just an interesting situation to watch, I think, because Edmonton's kind of dealt with a shaky roster and not much cap space to improve it. So I'm going to put this bluntly. Edmonton will never get Bouchard for cheaper than they will this offseason. And that's on any length. So, to me, they have to go long-term. They have to figure out a way to make this work. As you said, he's he's about to be their power play one quarterback on a, his, on a borderline historically good power play, playing with McDavid and Dreisaitl. He's going to get the most ice time again playing with McDavid and Dreisaitl. He's going to put up insane box score numbers this year, and that's what get defensemen paid. Yeah, and here's the issue with uh, that situation. We kind of just talked about it. Similarly with Rasmus Dahlin, why should Bouchard sign a long-term deal? But wait a year. Not even just because the cap's going up, but, but like you said, situationally. He's going to improve. He's going to be in a great situation this year, starting right away, power play one. If I'm Bouchard, I sign a one-year deal. Or I guess maybe a two-year, you give in and you do that. But um, like you said, Edmonton absolutely should be trying to get a long-term deal done. In theory... Maybe it's just moving someone like a Warren Fogel, who's 2.75 on the cap, add that to the 3.5, and, and maybe you can get close. I'm not sure that amount of money gets it done. Um, I, I think he could push 6 or even 6.5 on a long-term deal at this point. Uh, and in, in that case, you would need to move someone a little bit uh, higher up on the the payroll. It's a tough situation for Edmonton. I'm going to jump in with a, what's going to sound like a hot take, but really makes a lot of sense. Um, if I'm Evan Bouchard, I'm not signing a long-term deal 
for a, an average annual value under eight million dollars. I'm just I'm just not doing it. It it makes no sense as the player because again everything we've just laid out, he's in line for a massive payday. Taking anything less than probably eight million dollars and even that in a couple years might be still a steal. I I think it's just I think it's a bad idea from the player agent side. Yeah, I, I don't foresee a scenario where his value is really going to decrease. So it, it it's very similar to Darlene. If if we are advising the player or the agent, there's really no point in having this off season be when the deal signed. So kind of, so there's a couple RFA names again, unsigned, not holdouts, not anything. They should be back with their teams. I mean, this point probably the only way they're not back with the teams if is if a trade happens one one other interesting name one that james has been a fan of since before free agency opened that's still sitting out there and could be a nice addition to a lot of teams as a middle six winger is thomas tatar we're not expecting we never expected him to break the bank but at this point it's probably he's look you're looking at a one-year deal tops two to three million dollars and even that might be pushing it at this point so he's a good player and uh i'll, I'll give the floor to you because he's he's been your guy for a while yeah so I, I think he's a just from so basically from an analytics perspective he is a very underrated player um going into the offseason our contract projections we had three years at about 3.37 million like you said i at this point in the offseason i don't think he gets that it's probably a one-year deal maybe there's a two-year deal sitting out there they're just waiting for him to take it i don't think it's going to be at that uh cap hit that we projected it'll be a little lower probably under three million um tatar i think fits most teams that need scoring and so I, I've, I've talked about this before. Um, I think we actually sort of mentioned it in a, in a past episode. A team like Buffalo, who just had a player in Jack Quinn go down with an injury, that seems like it would be a good fit. But even beyond that, like I said, any contender or team even expecting like maybe we could sneak into the playoffs, Tatar is a player you want on your team, just depth-wise. Uh, even if it's in a third-line role, like that's probably ideal. Um, and he would end up being, in my opinion, one of the better third-line players next year. Pittsburgh, if Getzel's injury kind of, I mean, a resolution on Tatar probably comes before Pittsburgh has 100% clarity on Getzel, who's it's been talked about he might just miss a couple games, so he might miss the first month. I was nervous just even how they phrased the press release, but that that's kind of a, I was bored on a random day in the offseason thing. But Pittsburgh with Tatar, especially, they're obviously pushing their chips in. If they could somehow make that work would make a lot of sense, especially if Getzel has I don't know. I don't want. I hope he recovers well. But if there is some lingering concerns about his availability for the season, I think Tatar makes a lot of sense there. Um, Toronto's tight on the cap, but he would be great there to provide some depth. I mean, as you said, a lot of teams that need that middle six depth, he would make a lot of sense. But I think Pittsburgh, Toronto are two teams that probably can't comfortably fit him. But it might be a smart idea. He would be someone that might make it worth being a little uncomfortable to kind of try and fit. Absolutely. I think his play would definitely warrant that. Um, another team that popped into my head, so I, I clicked into them on Cap Friendly, New York Rangers. Issue being, okay, so they've got just under 2.3 in cap space. They still need to sign uh, Lafreniere to a deal, which probably eats up all of that money. 
that's one situation, but that I feel like that's kind of what's going on just across the NHL right now. There's a little bit of a pause on everything. What domino is going to fall first? And I think Tatar is just kind of stuck in the middle of that. Of I, I would assume that there are a handful of teams interested in him, but they're all probably sitting there saying, well, hang on, not quite yet. We need to figure something out. Yeah, so I it, really, there's very few players left that need contracts. A little bit of a teaser in a in a little while, a couple more weeks. We're we're definitely going to release an episode, kind of re- recapping our contract projection model. We're trying to wait on like Zegris Tatar, but probably probably bef- right around the start of September, we'll look for that episode because at that point, if they're not signed. We, we, we don't want to continue leaving that out there. We, we've been preaching transparency with our projection model. Um, I mean, our air and everything's out there, but we, we would like to dive in, do a, do a deeper discussion. And as well as kind of the analytic talk, we gotta, we're going to have an episode upcoming about that as well. So um, we appreciate you listening to this episode. Hope you uh, subscribe to this podcast on wherever you might be listening right now. Uh, follow us on Twitter at AFP Analytics. You can also find our personal accounts there. Questions, thoughts on this episode, feel free to hit us up. And with that, we'll talk to you next time.